Welcome to the St. Moses Church Podcast. Thanks for joining us. St. Moses is a new church sharing the hope of Christ in the heart of Baltimore. If you unfold a quartered map of the city of Baltimore, you'll find us right where the creases intersect. If you have any questions or any way we can help you, please don't hesitate to reach out at info at stmose, that's S-A-I-N-T-M-O-S dot org. Now, let's continue with the podcast. I wonder what comes to mind for you when you hear the word meek. It's not a word we use every day. What comes to mind when you hear the word meek? I, uh, I googled it, and the first images that popped up were a mink, some little ferrety type thing. I'm assuming it was a mink, and a meerkat. I don't know what either one of those has to do with the word meek, but those popped up probably just because of association with the letter M. But I wonder, what's in your mind when you hear the word meek? Maybe uh, turn to somebody you're listening to this with or watching this with. Tell them what comes to mind when you hear the word meek. Aristotle uh, said that, me- uh, that meekness was one of his virtues. It was uh, For him, it was the, the mean, the average between anger on the one hand and indifference on the other. So, so meekness was right here in the middle. It was the balance point. And as with so many of those Greek virtues, the idea was balance. And that's not the biblical picture of meekness. Meekness in the Bible does not mean weak. Meekness in the Bible does not mean mild. It doesn't mean a pushover. It doesn't mean a doormat. It certainly doesn't mean somebody who has no backbone. And it doesn't mean someone who is silent and says nothing when they should say something. Before we jump into what it does mean, let me take a step back and I'll pray for us and then I'll get us into this series. And then we'll take a look at what meekness means. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning, wherever we are listening to your word uh, and listening to the sound of my voice, I pray that you would be with us by your spirit and that you would give us the imagination and the clarity of thought and the humility to hear you well this morning, to hear you well through your word. And anything that I say that's just rubbish, let it be that, let it fall to the side and what I say that's of you and that matters for us and that ought to change the way we view the world and the way we, we behave toward one another, would you just build that into our souls? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, week three. Well, it's actually week four in our series on the Beatitudes. As Jesus uh, starts the most famous of his sermons, the, the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with a series of blessed are the so-and-so statements. And as we pointed out, this, this word blessed can, can be translated for us uh, today like congratulations. You're right where you need to be. If, if you are poor in spirit, perfect. That's that's where you need to be. And each one of these blessed are statements is a description, not of the people who end up getting into the kingdom of God, but of what it looks like when the kingdom of God is at work in someone's life. These are the attributes, the display 
of the presence of the Holy Spirit in someone's life as they surrender to God's rightful reign and authority over them. So we've done blessed are the poor in spirit. And last week, Sam did a great job for us on blessed are those who mourn. Today, we're talking about blessed are the meek. Matthew 5, verse 5. Two characters in the Bible are described as meek. Neither one is a pushover. Neither one is a doormat. The first one is Moses. We're introduced to Moses, you'll remember, and he uh, kills a man because he is uh, angry at the injustice that he sees. And where we're told Moses is meek is in Numbers chapter 12, and the situation is this. His brother and his sister, uh, Aaron and Miriam, come to him angry because he has married a Cushite woman. He's married a woman from sort of modern-day northern Sudan or southern Egypt, and they are incensed, uh, probably because they're racist, and they don't like the fact that he has married uh, this woman from Cush. And they challenge his authority, and they say, you have no right, you have no right. And where earlier in his life, Moses might have blown up at them or come back at them with his power and his strength. Instead, God calls all three of them into his presence. And there, God deals with Miriam and with Aaron. Moses is described in that scene as meek. The other person described as meek in the Bible is Jesus. And the scene that comes to mind for me, Matthew records for us later on in his telling of the life of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. You'll remember it's the evening that Jesus is betrayed. And he's there in the garden praying in the olive grove. And then you hear boots and sandals coming his way. And his former friend and disciple sells him out with a kiss. And as the Soldiers come around him to take Jesus into custody. One of Jesus' followers pulls out a sword and lops off a man's ear. And you'll remember Jesus tells him, put that sword away. And he restores the man's ear. And he says, why do you guys come at me like I'm some vigilante? Don't you know that I could call down all the angels of heaven, if I wanted to. Jesus doesn't respond to their violence with violence. Dr. Samuel Nguya, who teaches New Testament at Nairobi Evangelical Divinity Graduate School, says this. He defines meekness this way. Meekness is the ability to control one's power and to use it only for the benefit of others. I'll say that again. Meekness is the ability to control one's power and to use it only for the benefit of others. For the last few weeks, Jill and I have been watching a Danish TV show. Uh, It's called Borgen, and it's about a woman who uh, rises from a relative sort of mediocre status in Danish politics to to becoming the prime minister of the country. And it's all in subtitles. but it's, uh, it's interesting, and it charts the trajectory of her rise to power. And once she has power, you see the way her power 
transforms her character. And she becomes much more jealous of protecting her power and of using her power to protect herself and of using her power to try to garner more power. And of course, that's the way it is for so many of us. Once we have a little bit of it, we are quick to use it for our own benefit, to gather more and to protect and defend ourselves rather than for others. And yet, Peter, when he's writing to these Christians scattered across what's modern-day Asia, as they faced oppression, he reminds them of what Jesus' character is like, reminds them of what meekness is like. He says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He didn't retaliate when he was insulted, nor did he threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. So that's a picture of meekness. Meekness is not using our power to defend ourselves, not using our power to control someone else. It is submitting ourselves to God, using our power for the benefit of others, and letting the chips fall where they may. So how is it that this meekness, this attribute of meekness, how is this a display of the kingdom of God at work in the world. Or put differently, how is meekness a display that the gospel has taken hold in someone's life, that they've believed the good news that Jesus is king, that they've leaned the weight of their life on him, and that the, the life of God in his spirit is at work in someone? How is meekness a display of the kingdom? Let me give you a picture first. Some of you have seen uh, that TV show, Ted Lasso. It's about... Uh, an American football coach who gets hired to coach an English football team, an English soccer team, uh, Richmond FC. And they uh, do terribly. And there's this scene where uh, they are about to get relegated, kicked out of the league, uh, down to a lower tier. And it's sort of in a, in a kind of a Hail Mary attempt. Uh, Ted Lasso coaches the team, the soccer team, to set up as if they were a football team. So they've got this line of scrimmage. You've got somebody running back and forth. You've got somebody almost like a center who's going to hike the ball. And everybody, the idea is just to create confusion. The other team doesn't know what to do. And the commentators in the booth, all they can say is, what on earth is going on? It's clear this team is being coached by somebody who knows American football and not English soccer. And in that same way, when meekness is on display in someone's life, it's evidence that this person is refusing to play by the rules of the old world order. It's evidence that this person is instead following the character of Christ. It's it's evidence that instead of, of merely using their own power to control other people, this person is submitting to the Spirit's control in their lives. They have relinquished the need to control others by coercion, 
by manipulation, by violence, instead influencing them with love, with truth, and with the Spirit's power. What does it look like to practice meekness? Because it's, it's not natural. It's not natural to me. It's not natural to most of us. So, so what does it look like to, to train ourselves in meekness? I'm indebted to my friend Aaron Graham, who's a pastor of a wonderful international multiracial church in D.C. called the District Church. And he sent me some reflections on his life from when he turned 40. He said it, he called it the view from 40. How to make sure that being a full-time pastor doesn't make you a part-time follower of Jesus. And one of his resolutions, one of his observations when he turned 40 was, was this, that, that, that he wanted to, um, he wanted to desperately eradicate from his life the need simply to be liked. The need to be liked. He said so much, he realized that so much of our need to be liked is actually about controlling the way other people view us and interact with us. So here's, here's the first, a sort of an everyday way to begin practicing training meekness into our lives. Stop trying to control others by overmanaging the way they see you. I'll tell you what it looks like so often in my life. Jill will say to me gently and kindly, hey baby, you're, you're, a, you're a bit critical. I'm experiencing uh, a, lot of, a lot of criticism from you. And I'll be like, what? I'm critical? I, I, I affirmed you. I complimented you on Saturday. And, and you're the critical one. Look, you're criticizing me right now. So the first thing I'll jump to is defensiveness, trying to, to justify my reputation, hold up the record of when I've gotten it right. And instead, switching the blame by jumping into attack mode and returning the critique. And all that's about is, it's about controlling her, trying to control the way she sees me and control the way she responds to me so that I can feel better about myself. But instead, meekness, meekness would be to to cultivate an accurate biblical view of myself. As a guy who quite often gets it wrong, as a guy who could really grow in being affirming and complimentary, and as a guy who sometimes gets it right. And from that place of accurate self-understanding, to be able to receive in her feedback, the truth that's there so often, almost all the time, baby, (laughs) and to respond appropriately. So that's a very everyday example of trying to train meekness into our lives. Stop trying to control others by over-managing the way they see you. Here's another example that might seem much more threatening and maybe not so everyday for some of us, and maybe much closer to everyday for others. You might have seen these uh, scenes in the movie Selma, or maybe you've seen the photographs 
of the training sessions prior to the lunch counter sit-ins. When the organizers of these sit-ins realized the violence and the pushback that they would receive, they set up trainings for everyone who would be participating in these sit-ins. And so on their own, they would get together in these uh, mock scenarios, and I've got some images for you here, and they would sit down and someone would pretend to be angry and racist and would scream threatening things in their face and would blow smoke in their face and would stain their white clothing and would be obnoxious and coercive and violent. And the people who were preparing to sit in had to train themselves to bring all of their power under control. Not to be afraid, not to be a coward, not to be timid, but to avoid responding to the old world order of violence and anger with like kind. It was a scenario where was what was practiced firstly in private grew strong enough that it could then be borne out in public. And I wonder for us at St. Mo's, what does that look like? What does it look like to practice meekness in private so that it has the strength to stand in public? And I didn't want to speak cavalierly or from the hip to um, people of color at St. Mo's as a white guy on this topic. I reached out to my friend, Pastor Rich Johnson. Many of you know him. Uh, pastors of multiracial church in Columbus, Ohio, and he's a leader in the, the multi-ethnic church movement. And he's, he's a, an African-American man, a dear friend. He said, Ian, for, for people of color, it means don't be passive. It doesn't mean silence. It instead means being so committed to the kingdom of Jesus, being so committed to to biblical justice, biblical racial justice, that you refuse to capitulate to the old world order, even though it may cost us dearly, as it has for so many. And for white people, for my white sisters and brothers, it doesn't mean just so, it doesn't just mean approving of that sort of courage and meekness from afar and celebrating it and thinking man that's that's amazing it means the willingness to suffer alongside it means being honest about the relational cost it means counting it there's going to be fallout and if you are willing to stand with your sisters and brothers of color, for true racial justice, there will be fallout. You will lose friends. You'll have people call you nasty things. And it doesn't mean that you have to then become a bull Connor toward your white friends and family. It doesn't mean that at all. It means instead you meet the anger and the vitriol and the fear with meekness with courage, with control and resolve in Christ. And you let the chips fall where they may. 
I'd be interested to know what you think. Use the chat box if you're with us on Zoom right now. Use the chat box. What might preparing in private to exercise meekness in public look like for you? What might it look like for us at St. Mo's? Do you, do you need to, to practice having conversations with friends or family members? Do you need to practice being in uncomfortable situations? What does practicing meekness in private so that we can exercise meekness in public look like? So that's the first half of the Beatitude. Blessed are the meek. And here's the promise. Blessed are the meek. Congratulations to the meek, for they will inherit the whole earth. The backdrop to this promise uh, comes to us in Psalm 130 or Psalm 37. And those of you who are familiar with Psalm 37 will know that there's this refrain that goes uh, back and forth, back and forth throughout the psalm. And it goes like this. It goes, the, the godly or the ones God blesses will possess the land or the ones God blesses will inherit the land. And the, the perspective of Psalm 37 is this. What do you do? What do you do when the evil are prospering? What do you do when you look around you and you read your headlines and you see through your windshield and you notice when you walk along the street that the ones who are flourishing are the greedy and the violent and the prideful and the haughty and the oppressive and the ungodly? When they are the ones who are flourishing, what do you do? And that psalm says, but the godly will inherit the land. And it makes me think, of that song that Mark introduced for us a couple weeks ago and that we're singing again this Sunday by Common Hymnal, which is riffing on these Beatitudes, the song called The Kingdom of Yours. And during the chorus, it says, hold on a little more. This is not the end. Hope is in the Lord. Keep your eyes on him. Because it might seem like God has stepped out of the picture because of the way things are going, but he hasn't. He hasn't. Hold on a little more. Hope is in the Lord. Keep your eyes on him. And so that's the psalm that's in the backdrop when Jesus gives this promise. Uh, Congratulations to the meek, for you will inherit the land. Actually says you will inherit all the earth. And I want to be careful here. I want to be really careful recognizing uh, that I'm a white guy and uh, that this understanding of land in the Bible has been so, so uh, mistreated to, to grievous ends. So just hang with me for a moment because I want to substantiate some of what I'm saying uh, because of the consequences of misunderstanding here. The idea of land is is incredibly uh, central in the Old Testament. It's the fourth most used word in the entire uh, Old Testament, the word uh, land in Hebrew, ha'aretz. And it's still very popular. If you go to to Israel today, you'll be like, welcome to ha'aretz. They have a newspaper called ha'aretz. And if you track this theme of the land through the Old Testament, several things emerge. Firstly, that God is the owner. 
because he created everything, he is the owner of the land. And he's the one who gives land to peoples as a gift because he's kind and he gives it to peoples for their own good. And he also retains the right to move people in and out of lands. So we are familiar with him moving the people of Israel, gathering a people and moving them into the promised land. And he also later moves them out of the land. But in Amos and Deuteronomy and elsewhere, you'll see that it's not just the Israelites. The, the biblical story shows us that, that God moves other people, all the peoples of the earth. God moves them to different lands. At times, he'll forbid people to enter a land occupied by others, and at times, he directly tells them to possess it. So God owns the land, and he gives it to people at different times. This is the Old Testament, and and God makes the land holy by his presence. So the land isn't holy in its own right, the land of Israel isn't holy in its own right. It's, it's holy because when God put his people there and he showed up there, he makes it holy. It's, it's holiness is derivative based on him. And so the land is, is in, incredibly important for the people of God in the Old Testament because it's, it, it is one of the things that gives them their identity. They are known as the people who come to dwell in this land that God has promised to give them. It's a, it's a place where he said if they, they live his way and stay faithful to him, where he will protect them and where they will flourish, where, where he will provide for them. And ultimately, it is a place where in its city he will have a house built for him and where his name will dwell and where he will be worshipped. So the land is incredibly important. But when God's people depart from him and follow the different kingdoms of the world instead of the king creator, God essentially says, well, you're going to leave or I'm going to leave. And we see both happening. He sends the people out of the land into exile, and we also see pictures, uh, prophetic visions of God's glory departing from the temple. When you get to the New Testament, though, and here's where I want you to, to, to listen in, there's this massive shift. That central motif of land that's, that's so important in the Old Testament almost entirely disappears from the New Testament. And, and where it shows up, it is dramatically reframed. And I want to say that because if we don't notice that, If we don't interpret that correctly, we end up doing things like giving blanket support to the modern nation state of Israel in in ways that are oppressive to the Palestinians. And we ignore human rights violations and we ignore biblical justice and we ignore mistreatment of, of Palestinian Christians even all because we are misreading, in my opinion, the Bible's teaching on the inheritance of the land. And another way this has been so devastatingly misinterpreted is, uh, as, is, is during colonial expansion, where uh, people, in the name of inheriting the land, eagerly and with their Bible in hand, dispossessed others of it. So you see there are deeply, deeply damaging ramifications here, and that's why I want to be careful. So in the New Testament, this, 
this, these themes and promises that obtain to the land in the Old Testament, they, they get shifted in the first place, unsurprisingly here, Sunday school answer, the first place they get shifted is onto Jesus. So all of those things that I talked about in the Old Testament, that it's the place of protection and the place of provision and the, place, the ultimate locus of worship, and it's where you get your identity. In Paul's writings, all of that gets shifted into Jesus. And that's why you have that phrase, in Jesus, show up all the time in Paul's writings. It's, it's all of the land theme is now centrally located in Jesus. When you lean the weight of your life on him, when he becomes your king, when his spirit indwells you, he is your source of provision. He is your safety. He is your strong tower. He is where you dwell. It's in him that we're meant to abide. He is the one who will protect us. And it is him that we worship in his spirit in truth. Jesus becomes the first great fulfillment of the land. But then there's also this future sort of comprehensive inheritance. And where you see this is the way that the Bible begins with the picture of a Garden of Eden. God is the creator and he's put humanity in a beautiful place and he has asked them to collaborate with him, intending it and enjoying it, taking care of it. And the Bible ends with a new heavens and a new earth where the whole world has been remade and the whole world has been given to his son as he promised in Psalm 2. And together with his son, the whole world has been given to those who are in Jesus. Not in a land-grabbing sense, not in a coercive, violent sense, but in the sense that for those who are in Christ, one day the whole old world order will pass away and the whole world will be remade in submission to and alignment with King Jesus. And it will be inherited not by the violent, but by the meek. So if you can picture Jesus teaching this, as he stands there in Galilee on a hillside. And sitting there listening to him is Simon, a zealot, and many other zealots whose plan is to overthrow the world order with their swords. And also sitting there listening to him likely are Romans who are stationed in the garrison nearby. And at Certainly there are other Jewish people there who are in bed with the Romans and who are supporting the Roman oppressive world order because they know that that is the way for them to get ahead right now. And it's into that environment that Jesus says, it's not to the violent revolutionary. It's not to the controlling oppressor. It's not to you that the earth will go. Congratulations to you who are meek. Good on you. you, you who are courageously keeping your power in check, who are, who are submitted to the Spirit and brave enough to let the chips fall where they may. Congratulations, you meek. The whole earth will not go to the greedy. The world order, that old world order, it is passing away. It's on a respirator. Congratulations, you meek. In Christ, the whole earth will one day be yours. So hold on a little more.
This is not the end. Your hope is in the Lord. Keep your eyes on him. Father, would you give us courage to be meek? Would you send your spirit deep in my life and deep in the life of this church and deep in the life of those who are listening to this to help us submit to King Jesus, to follow the way of your kingdom, to resist the way of this world order, and to be meek enough to let the chips fall where they may. In Jesus' name, amen.